it's almost like placing the guard outside the door instead of inside the door, which is sort of circulating immune system. And, and that guard in this case is IgA. Dr. Akiku Iwasaki is Valdemar von Zedwitz Professor of Immunobiology and Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale University and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Dr. Iwasaki has made seminal contributions to our understanding of how the innate and adaptive immune responses cooperate to fight off viral infections, often focusing on the various barrier tissues where the host first encounters infectious agents. During the Zika outbreak, the Iwasaki lab investigated how antiviral immunity affected normal fetal development, particularly in the central nervous system. Her lab had also investigated potential causes of seasonality in the susceptibility to infections by respiratory viruses. All of this put the Iwasaki lab very much in the eye of the pandemic storm. Akiko and her collaborators have made a series of important discoveries using both human samples and data as well as animal models about the pathophysiology of COVID-19. During the pandemic, Akiko has somehow managed to combine this research with an extremely active role in science communication in both conventional and social media. Akiko was elected an associate EMBO member in 2021. Because some of the topics discussed in this episode relate to the rapidly evolving COVID-19 pandemic, we'd like to note that it was recorded on December 20th, 2021. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. Welcome, Akiko, and thank you very much uh, for speaking to us at the EMBO podcast. Um, I wanted to start with uh, with something you said in an interview to JX Med last year, because you you had lived in the U.S. as a as a child for or as a teenager, I guess for for a few for a few months, and you said um, my exposure to America made me bold. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Right. So I was born and raised in Japan. And uh, so my father um, is a physicist, and he works uh, at a local university. And so I was exposed to um, his work and science uh, from childhood. But I was confined to Japan uh, until I was 13. And uh, he had asked me if I wanted to go with him on a sabbatical to Maryland and, uh, you know, uh, my sister, who was one, one year younger than me, so 12 and 13 year old, uh, we decided to go with, um, our father to America. And, uh, that experience was, um, well, first of all, it was quite shocking to me <laughs> growing up in Japan and in rural Japan and not being exposed to any other culture or language or customs. It was a, a big culture shock. But at the same time, it uh, made me bold because I knew that I could probably survive in another country that speaks a different language and that has different customs uh, because I did survive with my father uh, for that eight months. And, and it also opened my sort of worldview to beyond Japan. And I think that was a pivotal moment for me. And where did you do your university studies? So I went to University of Toronto to do my undergraduate degree in biochemistry and physics. Um, and then I went to University of Toronto again to do graduate work in immunology. How did you become interested in immunology? Yeah, so I wasn't really uh, intending to become an immunologist when I was in college, but I took a senior course in introductory immunology 
And that sort of really opened my eyes to such an exciting area of science that I hadn't known before. Um, what was striking to me was that immunology not only explains a lot of how we defend against pathogens, but also how a vaccine works. And that, to me, was incredible. And all these cell types and factors working together in concert, um, I thought it was really elegant. It's fascinating to me how many people I meet who complain about their, their introduction to immunology course, I think, because... Um, a lot of places, particularly medical schools, start with sort of a catalog. CD4 cells do this, CD8 cells do this, CD137 is this, CD154 is that. And I meet a lot of people with a profound hatred of immunology <laughs> by the time they get to graduate school in, in a life science. Yeah. And and I, I noticed uh, for a few years now from, from what you post and from speaking to people at New Haven that you and, and, and Ruslan Medzitov really seem to enjoy teaching immunology. Um, <laughs> what's your starting point? Yeah, so Ruslan and I have worked together to really uh, construct a course for of, of introductory immunology for medical students over the last um, several years now. And uh, we wanted to approach immunology from first principle, uh, not throwing some CD numbers and IL whatever <laughs> at the students, but really kind of starting from you know, how the system is established, how it works, uh, you know, what detection systems there are, and just arsenals of immune effector functions that are, you know, used to fight off different infections. So, you know, we, we, we revamped this whole sort of, you know, paradigm of immunology teaching in order not to make students um, hate immunology. What was your PhD on? So my PhD was um, in immunology, but I worked with uh, Dr. Brian Barber, who at the time was starting to look at DNA vaccines. So this was just right on the cusp of the beginning of nucleic acid vaccine strategies. And in 1994, DNA vaccine was like the, the new kid on the block. It was really hot. Everyone was talking about it. And I got really excited to study it myself. So I studied how the DNA vaccine works, what cell types are involved in the priming process. Um, at that time, there was a lot of talk about the DNA being taken up by muscle cells because you inject these vaccines into the muscle. And so somehow the muscle cells were thought to convert into antigen-presenting cells, and that sort of gave the DNA vaccine its edge. Uh, but however, I, I questioned that <laughs> assertion and, um, I, I tried to, uh, devise experiments that would, you know, probe this idea. And in fact, indeed, it turned out that it's not the muscle cells, but it's the dendritic cells, the hematopoietic cells that are dedicated to priming immune response. That's also involved in DNA vaccine. That turned out to be very important again right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of parallel to DNA and RNA vaccines. So it's it's interesting that, that you mentioned this heyday of, of DNA vaccines in the 90s, and then it sort of died for, for quite some time or went quiescent, not that the research stopped, but it became less of the uh, the golden child in the eyes of what, what the next big thing would be in vaccine technology. Why do you think that that happened? I think um, one of the major sort of uh, reason it didn't flourish like the mRNA vaccines 
is that uh, it wasn't found to be very immunogenic in humans. Um, and there are some tricks and um, strategies that people are still trying to improve the DNA vaccine. And I think there is a path forward. Um, it's just that, you know, in, in the mice uh, and in, in small rodent studies, the DNA vaccines were super effective in priming, you know, T cells and antibody responses. But um, in, in larger um, animals and in human trials, um, it was uh, less than, the f- you know, desirable. Were there any clear reasons for that species difference? Yeah, we still, I think people are still trying to figure this out. But, you know, one is to deliver enough material to produce, um, you know, good antigen load to be able to prime immune response. And, um, you know, potentially we, we also tried different modes of delivery, like, um, you know, gene gun, <laughs> which at the time was also beginning to emerge, essentially trying to introduce the DNA into the skin using, you know, gold particles that are coated with DNA. Um, and these things are, you know, were being developed and is still, I think, being developed in order to enhance delivery and antigenicity and, and so on. For me, one of the fascinating things about so much of the work you've done is starting all the way back, looking at, at the muscle is how far out you venture into tissues where immunologists normally don't like to go <laughs> just because <laughs> it's so much easier to pull out a lymph node and, and run it through a mesh and centrifuge cells and have 40 million cells you can analyze in 30 minutes. Um, and so I guess in, in, after your PhD, you had this very interesting um, vaccination strategy that you called it pull, uh, what is it? Pull and pull and prime. Oh, prime and pull. Prime and pull, sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is, again, really concerned about the, the tissue basis of immunity and having the right site, right? Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So after my PhD, um, I did a postdoc at the NIH to study mucosal immunity. Um, that's because, uh, you know, even though I was fascinated with vaccines and intramuscular injection and so on, um, I knew that most pathogens enter through the mucosal surface, and I, I thought that there should be a dedicated system to defend, you know, against these types of pathogens at the site of infection. So that's why I decided to kind of switch the focus a little bit to study mucosal immunity. And so I did that at the NIH uh, in the gut, um, these Peyer's patches, which are um, lymphoid organ structure that occur right underneath the epithelial cells um, and found specialized dendritic cells in these tissues that prime uh, gut-specific or gut-appropriate immune responses. And when I got my position at Yale in 2000, um, I decided that I want to study pathogens that are understudied but are very important, um, such as the sexually transmitted pathogens. So um, I moved into the genital mucosa and studied genital herpes infection. And after, you know, decade of work in that area, we discovered, you know, priming and effector functions that are important to defend against the uh, herpes simplex viruses. And based on that insight, we devised a strategy called prime and pull, which is a two-step vaccine strategy where prime can be any vaccines that can be given any routes. Uh, intramuscular is totally fine. And just to, to uh, elevate the effector T cell and effector B cell responses. And then we would pull these effectors into the tissue using chemokines or chemokine-inducing agents. 
Um, and that's the pull step, the second step, which is applied, you know, about a week after the prime. And that establishes these uh, tissue resident memory cells that are quite protective against, um, you know, future encounter with that pathogen. So prime and pull takes advantage of normal, like just regular vaccines that people use um, all the time and converting it into a mucosal vaccine by simply pulling the effector cells into the mucosa. Along these lines, a few days before we recorded our conversation, Akiko's lab, led by joint first authors Ji Yuno, Eric Song, and Miyu Moriyama, published a study in science immunology entitled Intranasal Priming Induces Local Lung Resident B-Cell Populations That Secrete Protective Mucosa Antiviral IgA. Looking at this, what kind of uh, vaccination strategies do you think it points to for SARS-CoV-2? So, um, absolutely. The mucosal immunity is likely the best strategy to go forward fighting this pandemic because, um, you know, so the mucosal immunity has several advantages. One is that the effector responses are established within the tissue of viral encounter, like the nasal cavity, the throat, the, the lung. Um, so the it's almost like placing the guard outside the door instead of inside the door, which is sort of circulating immune system. Um, and, and that guard in this case is IgA, because IgA is a dimeric uh, antibody that can be transported across the epithelium into the mucosal lumen. And they have this optimized uh, sort of half-life within that mucosal tissue to provide uh, long-lasting and local immune response. So having that IgA is essentially in the right place at the right time would be uh, very effective in preventing infection altogether. Um, another reason for having IgA is that it's it's much more resistant to mutations because of the fact that it has two arms instead of one arm to you know, bind to the surface of the virus. So some uh, mutations uh, can be tolerated by this kind of strategy because you have just more avidity of uh, such antibodies that can bind to the surface of uh, potential variants. Um, and so you have this resistance, resistance to mutation as well as location, as well as potentially extended time for protection, uh, duration of protection, because these tissue resident memory cells, once they're established, they're, they're not going anywhere. They're just going to be remain put in that tissue. And that uh, could potentially provide, you know, much more extended sort of long duration of protection as well. So I, I guess one of the challenges now is since, since we started vaccinating in a, in a public health emergency is to start thinking longer term in terms of what, what would be a sustainable uh, protection strategy so that we don't end up, I guess a yearly booster in the, like the flu is is something that most people would probably be comfortable with, but we, we can't have like every, every 45 days, you need um, something to, to reboost the immune system. But obviously we weren't able to design this, let's say from first principles, even uh, very recently, um, the, the BioNTech founders were, were at a conference and, and they were saying we would not go to do a three week interval between immunizations, if we were in a perfect world, we we, we know it will work uh, probably better in a, in a more spaced uh, immunization setting. But that said, if we get out of the uh, of this winter and we have the option and, and the time uh, to think about this, uh, what where, where would you go from here? 
you know, I think most people would find it a little bit difficult to um, swallow, you know, every six months getting boosted for the foreseeable future. Um, and we don't know what kind of variants will arise, right? So that's the thing. Like, we, we basically need to be prepared to um, vaccinate against a potential future variant that may be very distinct, uh, th- that may escape antibodies and neutralizing antibodies, uh, which is essentially what's happening with Omicron. Um, and the third dose booster appears to be elevating the neutralizing antibody response even against Omicron, which is a uh, really good news. But even that's not a guarantee that, you know, you won't get infected or um, hopefully not sick from infection if you're boosted. So these uh, data are emerging. But I, I think going forward, like I said, you know, the mucosal vaccine may be um, something we should really pursue uh, because we can leverage our existing memory response and just put them right in the right place. Uh, which is sort of nasal cavity and potentially oral cavity. And uh, to do that, we, we just basically use a mucosal vaccine as a booster um, instead of intramuscular vaccine. And that, I think, will promote a much more protective and uh, mutant-resistant immunity going forward. There would also be a nice possibility that it would get IgA in the maternal milk as well to get um, some additional protection for, for infants. Right. Um, I guess one thing I was looking back at at a couple of pieces you did with with embo molecular medicine last year, mm-hmm. where it was so rational. You you were very clear on an emphasis in one piece talking about the the, the response in Japan and in in another piece, uh, in more generally, about the importance of of public health measures and and masking and distancing and and some level of 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 public health response that was not vaccine reliant. And and right now, um, it seems like that would also be the ideal just to give us some time to come up with better <laughs> vaccination strategies so that we're not always playing, playing catch up, playing catch up. But I guess everyone's a bit exhausted, right? I, I know I am. <laughs> I'm sure you are and much more. Absolutely. Um, do you think there's a because you've you've been doing such a great job in public communication? Um, do you think uh, are you hopeful about that about getting the message across to people that these things still have to be combined that we're we're not in a in a place where there will be a purely vaccination or pharmaceutical uh, exit to to the COVID situation? What kind of response do you find from the public? Right. So I think the public, um, especially with the Omicron, there is a, a little bit of, um, not confusion, but like an uncertainty, obviously, because we, we don't know how severe Omicron is in different demographic populations. And, um, there, there are some reports from South Africa showing that, you know, this Omicron variant may potentially be less, um, severe. But, um, you know, we have to be careful uh, not to interpret early data and apply it to everywhere. Um, so I, I think people, because of the, the, the discussion about the mild, so-called mild nature of Omicron, uh, people are starting to think that this is sort of just like a common cold or a flu and that it, it may be even advantageous to get exposed to Omicron just to, yeah, just to kind of get it over with, which I find that type of uh, thinking a little premature. 
and dangerous because we don't know what the consequence of Omicron long term. And I'm afraid that, you know, a large proportion of people who get these kinds of infections, even if it starts with a mild infection, could turn into long COVID, which would be um, devastating. And so, you know, I still think, as you say, uh, the vaccines are a great tool to combat infection altogether, but also because of the fact that Omicron is um, highly escape capable of neutralizing antibodies, we really do need to layer up every measure we have at, you know, at our hand to try to reduce transmission and um, disease burden in different communities. And uh, I think that's why going into online, you know, um, teaching during the, the time of surge, um, it makes sense. And, um, it's, it's also very important that in the winter months, especially where I live, um, the things are a little bit more dangerous because you import this cold air, uh, which has very little moisture into buildings and then you heat it up. And the end result is that you have very low humidity in that air. And that's an optimal situation for the virus to transmit and to make you sicker because our airway um, mucosa also requires some humidity to act properly. So we, we now have this combination of winter months, cold air, as well as dry air, and, you know, people gathering inside the buildings, um, which may or may not be ventilated properly, all kinds of things are happening that promotes transmission. And, um, and I, I do worry about this sort of public um, fatigue, obviously, of COVID, I mean, which we cannot help. But now is not the time to relax the measures. I, I agree completely. Akiko is also exploring ways to harness the mechanisms behind antiviral immunity and repurpose them to promote anti-tumor responses. Together with a colleague at Yale, structural biologist Anna-Marie Pyle, she has recently launched a startup called Rig Immune. I want to switch to something completely not COVID, really. Okay. <laughs> I watched this great seminar that, that you and a colleague did uh, a few months ago about a company you, you were launching. And, and, oh. and this one, yeah was was more oncology oriented and you were developing these stem loop RNA um, applications for oncology. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, thank you for listening to that. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, in addition to academic research, I'm also trying to develop some of our innovations into things that are useful in people. And so one of that is the stem loop RNA um, uh, application. And what this is, is a, is a very short RNA that has a stem loop and double-stranded um, RNA and uh, either triphosphate or diphosphate uh, five prime um, modification. And this small RNA turns out to be an excellent agonist for RIGI. And this uh, insight and the design all came from uh, Professor Anna Pyle, who is my long-term collaborator. Um, she solved the structure of Rigai along with the RNA. And with that insight, she designed this very um, cool little molecule, um, stem loop RNA SLR. And so we've been using the SLR to see if we can generate antiviral and anti-tumor immunity. 
And、uh, we had a paper、uh, this year, sort of demonstrating the、uh, ability of the SLR to induce anti-tumor immunity as well as antiviral immunity.、Um, in particular, when we inject this SLR into the tumor, we can convert the sort of quiet environment of the tumor、um, into something that looks like a viral infection because Regi is,、um, you know, is a sensor of viruses. And so we can sort of hack the system into thinking that there is a viral infection and that it needs to be、uh, T cells made against the antigen、uh, within. And in, in fact, that's, that's what happens by injecting the SLR into the tumor. We can induce dendritic cells to take up some of the tumor antigen prime T cell immunity. Uh, particularly CD8 T cells that can then go back to that tumor bed and kill the tumor and eliminate it. And so we've tested this in, in numerous tumor settings, tumor、um, models, and in all cases, we see a very good、uh, induction of anti-tumor immunity. And especially when we combine this with the existing、uh, therapy, like the checkpoint blockade therapy,、uh, we can see regression and memory response against these tumors. So、uh, we're very excited to bring this to patients. And、uh, to that end, we had to launch a company. I think it's so cool because、uh, for a long time, I've been having arguments with people who are just assuming that、um, when you have measures of genomic instability of tumors, that the sole driver must be the neoantigens. And I, for me, it's, it's always such a clear correlate of what's likely to be a strong type 1 interferon response in, in, in the tumor. And with that in mind, in your system, how dependent is it on neoantigens of the tumor to get a good response? Yeah, I think neoantigens or some sort of antigen is required for obviously the T cells to attack these tumors.、Um, and most tumors do have, you know, neoantigens because of its, you know, faulty epigenetic regulation of different factors and、um, mutations of certain genes and so on.、Um, we, we haven't really,、um, Exactly, kind of hone in on how many neoantigens are required and so, so on. But using these models,、uh, we, we can elicit T cells that are specific to the tumor. And it's not that these animals all of a sudden become autoimmune or anything. It's just、um, T cells that are specific to the tumor that can recognize and destroy. So my thinking is that it's likely that you need some sort of, some level of new antigen for the recognition, the signal one, the T cell receptor recognizing the peptide. But that's not enough.、Um, usually if a dendritic cells were to present just the peptide, T cells aren't going to be activated. And, and this is where the SLR comes in is to give that PAMP that the dendritic cell needs just to prime the naive T cells to become effectors. Have you tried it in tumors that are, that are virally linked, like HPV、uh, derived tumors? That's a great idea. I mean, HPV derived tumors are probably you know, easier than、uh, relying on some new antigens because there are viral antigens that can be targeted.、Um, we haven't tried it、um, specifically, but that's, that's a great idea. I'd be very, very curious to, to know what <laughs> happens with that. Um, and and uh,、um, I know I promised no more COVID, but just to finish this story, You've also looked at, at this experimentally in the context of SARS CoV 2 infection, right? So, what happened there? Yeah, so、um, that's the other study that we published where we can use the SLR to either、uh, as a prophylaxis to prevent infection with SARS CoV 2 or post exposure prophylaxis, like immediately after the exposure, you can treat these animals with SLR and eliminate the virus and the animals survive the infection. 
Um, we also saw this really cool thing where the rag knockout mice, which are infected with SARS-CoV-2, they, they are chronically infected. They just can't, you know, get rid of the virus because there are no T or B cells. However, one injection of SLR was able to eliminate the pre-existing virus, persistent virus infection. So this to me was the most surprising data because we, we thought that adaptive immunity would be required to get rid of a persistent virus. But, um, the SLR just, I think it just induces so much interferon that it, it, it can sort of rely on innate immunity alone to get rid of a persistent virus infection. So that is exciting because we could potentially um, use that strategy to treat chronically infected um, people. Also, very recently, you, you co-authored a paper with Richard Favell on a, on a new mouse model, which is an incredible amount of work. There's, there's this old Borges story about a guy who starts making a map of the kingdom and it ends up having to be the kingdom itself. And, and for people who haven't seen the paper, I think everybody should see in, in Nature Biotech. And it's, it's a, an incredible amount of work because you start from these, uh, from, in part from the, the, the AAV human ACE2 model that you developed. And then from this sort of humanized innate immune system mouse that the, uh, the Flavel lab uh, had developed. And then you put in uh, human uh, hemopoietic cells to, to humanize the adaptive immune system of the mouse. And, and it's now two years into this pandemic and a lot of different models had been tried, um, including by you. So what was unique about the information you got out of this mouse model? So first of all, I want to, you know, give credit to the, the first author of this study, Essence Sefik, who um, really spearheaded and did a lot of the work that's in this paper. So it's enormous amount of work and kudos to Essen. Um, but we did, yeah, we were able to, um, collaborate and help them sort of establish this humanized mouse model. Um, in particular, the AAV mediated transduction of human ACE2 enabled, uh, respiratory infection in this, um, uh, Mr. G6, the mouse model that Richard's lab has uh, developed over the, over probably a decade or more. Um, I can't remember when he first started, but I know that his lab has, been really the forefront of making a humanized mouse model for various diseases. And uh, Mr. G6 enables uh, reconstitution with um, human hematopoietic stem cells and development of, um, you know, most of this adaptive as well as innate immune uh, system. And with this um, all together <laughs> created this humanized mouse model of chronic COVID-19, where um, because of the um, impaired adaptive immune response in these animals, even though B cells and T cells are present, it sort of mimics this um, severe COVID um, infection in humans. Um, essentially, these animals uh, get infected and they kind of maintain um, infectious virus for longer than, of course, an intact, immune intact animal. And in addition, you know, if you look at the viral RNA, they, they persist for a very long time. Uh, and, and we see pneumonia, we see weight loss, we see uh, a lot of the sort of severe um, kind of um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, disease features that we also see in humans. What's striking, I mean, there are many findings that are great to highlight about this paper, but what's striking about this is that in the absence of these uh, hematopoietic cells, these animals don't get very sick. 
Uh, whereas this human uh, immune cells themselves are almost required to develop this um, weight loss and, and disease that we can observe in these animals, demonstrating that um, immune system, you know, can provide this environment where um, disease itself is now driven by the hematopoietic immune cells themselves. And it probably um, owes its its sort of disease pathogenesis to, you know, inappropriate immune response as well as macrophage uh, accumulation that they see in the lung and um, also plasma cytodendritic cells, which are the very cells that we usually need to fight off infection early, are being sort of engaged at late stage of infection and are probably the source of these bolus of interferon that they see. And this interferon, uh, as we also reported last year, that interferon themselves can drive the immunopathology in uh, severe COVID, um, as well as the mouse model of COVID that we, we generated. So it's all sort of coming together. I mean, the, this humanized mouse model is really beautiful because it, it can replicate a lot of the things that we see in humans. Looking forward to reading more more papers with it. It's such an incredible model. Just to, to, to wrap up on, on immunology in general, in the last, uh, let's say, three decades, I think we've seen a, a, sh- a progressive shift towards a, a better understanding of, of what would be the biology of the immune system rather than, you know, the, uh, the molecular biology and the cell biology of antigen-specific uh, receptors. And if I put it in very simple ways, say in the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, uh, starting, of course, with, with, with Charles Janeway, you had this uh, shift uh, to understanding that not everything was evolving <laughs> And that we were unlikely to be infected by chicken egg whites uh, lethally, and that we would have to understand the antigen as part of an infectious agent and, and as part of something that had particular molecular signals from the host. And of course, you you studied uh, some very important uh, components of the toll system in, in this context in, in the early 2000s. Um, and now we we finally see a really marginalized area that's always been there, but it's so much harder to do uh, mucosal immunology and tissue immunology than lymph node um, immunology. And, and I, I just used to tell people, come see, you know, you take out the whole intestine, you flush it, uh, crap literally everywhere sometimes. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I'm curious if you would hazard a guess if there is now a, a next frontier after that to, to a more biological understanding of the immune system where you would, let's say, recommend a young PhD student or a postdoc to go into now? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I, I still think there's a lot to be learned about infectious disease um, itself. Uh, you know, not just sort of symptoms and features, but uh, fundamental pathogenesis. Um, in particular, I'm super interested in this long-term consequence of an acute infection with viruses. And um, this is highlighted by long COVID that's happening uh, all around the world. Millions are suffering from it. And I think that, you know, if not for the need, the medical need, it's also scientifically a big challenge to crack this kind of disease process that occur uh, with a seemingly acute infection with the virus. Uh, and, and it's not restricted to COVID, of course. There are so many other viruses and other pathogens that can lead to long-term consequences. So 
for me, I guess it's like so super um, biased, but that's an area that a young scientist can really get into and will be continue to be a problem that needs to be solved going forward. I wanted to wrap up on on something uh, a bit uh, a bit different. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious uh, to hear a recommendation here because at the end of this interview at JXMed uh, that that that, um, that we mentioned uh, up at the top of this interview, when when they were asking what what your hobbies are, what you like to do, um, you mentioned that you relax a lot reading Japanese fiction, and uh, I'm curious to know what authors you would recommend for somebody to get to know it. So yeah, I'm constantly reading Japanese fiction <laughs> as a way to relax, and because you know. Um, as scientists, we, we use, we are so used to kind of thinking deeply about a problem. And, and sometimes we get stuck in this loop <laughs> of thinking deeply, but not widely, um, or not looking at it from sort of a distance. And that really helps, I think, to read books and, or listen to music, do whatever, jogging, anything that takes your mind off of that, um, scientific problem that you're so deeply engaged in. And yeah, so I do read a lot of books. Right now I'm reading Murakami uh, books, <laughs> one after the other. <laughs> but uh, it can be anything. I mean, there are so many great novels that come out all the time. So uh, I'm constantly buying um, books <laughs> from an uh, online bookstore. Yeah, the stack is out of control also. <laughs> Thank you so much, Akiko, and, and Happy New Year. You can visit the Iwasaki Lab page at medicine.yale.edu to find out more about Akiko's past and present research. To know more about EMBO members and programs, visit our homepage at embo.org. Thank you for listening to the EMBO podcast.